Good morning, church. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. James chapter 3 is where we're going to be. James chapter 3, whether you're in the room, listening with us online, we'll continue our teaching series on this New Testament book of James and get into really what will be the back half of this teaching series. As you turn there, I want to get us ready for this message by asking you to consider a phrase, a sentence. It's a sentence you probably said when you were a kid. It's also possible you said this sentence to someone when you were a kid. Perhaps even your parents taught you to say this, or you who are parents have taught your children to say this phrase. It's a well-known phrase. It's a phrase that once I start to say it, you'll know the end to it. And so do that with me here. I'm going to say the phrase, and if you know how it ends, you say it out loud here in this morning, uh, room the morning, this morning, or, or, or watching online. The phrase goes like this, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We teach children to say this as a rebuttal to insults, as a rebuttal to what happens on playgrounds all across the English-speaking world. In fact, I did some research on this phrase this week and found that it's not a phrase that was like a generation or two old. This phrase first popped up in written form in 1863. That's how old this phrase is. It's been around for a while. What an interesting phrase. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a clever phrase. It's a memorable phrase. It's a well-known phrase. It's an acknowledged phrase. But what I want to persuade you of this morning is that it is also a wildly untrue phrase. Right? Because here's what I know. Sticks and stones can break our bones. And there are people listening to me this morning who have endured the suffering of physical violence against them. But is there a greater lie we tell our children than the idea that words will never hurt them? Is there a greater lie we tell young kids than the idea that words will never cause them pain? See, this morning, I think intuitively we all understand that though some of us have been through physical violence, most of us would identify that the deepest wounds that we remember, the things that have been most difficult in our lives, aren't the physical wounds, but it's what someone said to us or what someone has failed to say to us. See, sticks and stones do break your bones, but words will most definitely hurt you and they'll most definitely hurt me. And James is going to talk to us this morning about our words. And I want us to consider the power that those words have as we turn to James chapter 3. This is what the entire teaching, the entire part we're going to look at this morning is going to talk about. It begins this way. If you have your Bibles open, if not, we'll have it up here on the screen. It says this, James chapter 3, verse 1. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, Because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So James opens up with a a, a command or really an admonition for everyone who is a believer. And that, that thing he's trying to get us all to see is that not many of us should become teachers. Not many of us should become teachers. And now this word, teachers, could apply to any teaching that we do in any context. But I think in the context here, it is specifically aimed at those who teach in the context of the local church, who teach the truths of the Bible and the reality of the gospel. And James is trying to actually discourage people from becoming teachers. He's trying to say there is a bar you have to hit in order to teach in the local assembly of God's people. And not everyone should aim to do that. And why shouldn't everyone aim to do that? Because those who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, why is James so concerned about teaching? Why does James think that teaching is such a big deal in the local church? And here's what I believe, and here's what we see throughout history. 
I want you to recognize that the gospel that you have received, the gospel that you hold on to, the good news of Jesus, is a spoken, taught gospel. Like I need us to always recognize the gospel never just makes it to the next generation. The gospel is taught to the next generation. The truths of Jesus are explained to the next generation. You didn't become a Christian just because one day you sort of woke up and realized something on your own. Someone taught you about Jesus. Someone taught you about the Bible. Someone taught you about the truths of the scripture. And here's what we see all throughout the scriptures that this teaching that we do where we pass on the words of the gospel to the next generation is not something that should ever be taken lightly. Now, now here's what I don't believe. I don't believe when it says we'll be judged more strictly that it means that those of us who teach in the pulpit or in a children's Sunday school or in a small group or in a class here at Calvary are going to have to earn our way into heaven based on how good our teaching is. We all know here at Calvary that is not how we get into heaven. The heaven is granted to us as a gift. Eternal life is a gift of God so that no one can boast. It's not by what we do. But I do believe that God is holding those who would teach, which includes me and any of you who teach in any context here at this church or in our world, that he is holding us to a higher standard. Why? Because the gospel is always a spoken message. It is a proclaimed truth. And when we take that lightly, when we are frivolous with our teaching, when we don't take the word of God seriously, when we don't take the time to study and think and carefully and rightly divide the word of truth, we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. But hear me, not just us. We get the people who learn from us in all kinds of trouble. And and James deeply understands the weight that sits upon teachers because of the power of our words. He's going to explain it fully with the words in in verse 2. He goes on, he says, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So you'll notice he begins by speaking to everyone, but he's really aiming this at teachers. And then what does he do from there? He goes on to talk about we all stumble. He's going to reference anyone. So if the first verse of James 3 is really directed at those people like me or some of you who teach in the context of the local church, verse 2 is going to expand the rest of this chapter to everyone, to anyone, to all of us. And the reference point, like what he's going to go on to talk about in the rest of this chapter is anyone who's never at fault in these words, what they say. In other words... Well, what we're going to hear a message about this morning is the ways we stumble in the words that come out of our mouth. And what I want to invite you to is to consider this message not for someone else in your life this morning, but for you. This message is for anyone who's ever said something that they wished they hadn't said. This message is for anyone who's ever said something and then they wish they could grab it and stuff it back in. It's for the person who's ever said something and goes, how could I have said that? It's for the person who has been careless with their words and wounded someone. And here's the assumption James makes. When I say that this message is for those who have been careless with their words and wounded someone, he assumes that's true of all of us. We all stumble in many ways. And as we look at the power of words this morning, as we look at the power of the words that come out of our mouth this morning, I want us to see this clearly, that the words you speak will shape the direction and the quality of your life. I don't want to downplay words. I don't want to minimize them. I don't want to suggest in any way they have anything but the power, the capacity, the ability to shape the direction, which way your life's going, and the quality, how good it is of your life. So I want us to see how this begins in James chapter 3, verse 3. It's going to go on and say this. It says, we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us. When we do that, we can turn the whole animal. So what James is going to do is he's going to rapid fire images to us throughout the course of this chapter. 
In fact, my contention, and someone could prove me wrong if they present me a different chapter, but this is the most image-rich chapter of the Bible. We see picture after picture after picture after picture of what James is trying to get us to get our minds around, a mental map of what it means for us to consider the power of our words. And here's the first picture James is going to give us. The first picture is about a horse and the bit we put in the mouth of the horse. Now, if you go online, or or perhaps some of you don't need to go online because you're involved in in communities that are passionate about horses and training horses and owning horses and racing horses or anything like that, there's all kinds of conversations uh, about how you should raise the horse and what you should do and whether bits are good or bad or what kinds of bits. And I'm here this morning to tell you I have no opinion on any of that. I have no clue. I just know what James is trying to say here. James is trying to point out that this horse, this massive animal is controlled by this small, tiny, little bit. You think of horses, and it's the perfect image and analogy. Horses are something we as humans, we're just kind of drawn to. They're these unique animals that we can ride, but they're also in the wild, and we just, there's something majestic and beautiful about horses. I have a three-year-old girl. She loves horses. She thinks horses are the best. She thinks they're adorable. But you know what's not adorable? When my three-year-old little girl gets up next to a horse, right? Because horses are powerful. And if we're not careful, that horse could harm her. That horse could harm me. That horse could trample me and kill me. Horses are these powerful, powerful beasts that can be controlled by these tiny little things in their mouth. And here's what James is trying to get us to see. James is trying to get us to understand the power that the words have, that the power that our mouth has, the power that we have in the ability of speech to shape the things in our life and in this world. And here's what I want you to think about as we begin considering the power of your words in your life to shape the direction and quality of your life. Here's the first thing, that words have the power to bring order and clarity to your life. Words have the ability, the power, the magnitude to bring order and clarity to your life. And this has been the case since the beginning. If you think about the very beginning of the Bible, a year ago, we were studying the book of Genesis, if you remember that. And in Genesis, it begins in Genesis chapter one, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then if you know the second verse of the Bible, it says, now the earth was formless and void, right? Like the earth didn't have shape. It didn't have substance to it. It wasn't ordered and clarified. So what does God do over creation weeks? He brings order and clarity to the world. He brings sky and ocean and animals and trees. He brings all of this. And how does he do it? Through his words. God speaks. And what does he do? He creates Adam and he puts Adam in the garden, this first human being. And what's the first task he gives to Adam? The first task he gives to Adam is name all of the animals. So Adam's going, okay, that's a kangaroo and that's a giraffe and that's an elephant and that's a sea otter. What's he doing? He's bringing order and clarity to the created world. What do our words have the capacity to do? Our words have the capacity to bring order and clarity to our life. Listen to me this morning. If there's anything in your life that feels chaotic, if there's anything in your world that feels right now unclear, you're uncertain about, I believe that it is words that allow us to bring order out of chaos and clarity out of things we're uncertain about. So so let me give you a few examples. I believe one of the most important sentences you can ever utter and many of you have uttered this sentence, is that at some point in your life, you come to realize the nature of God and the nature of human beings, and you are able to utter the sentence, I am a sinner in need of salvation. Once you are able to articulate these words, everything about God, your relationship with God, Jesus Christ, the cross begins to make sense. You bring order out of the chaos of this fallen world. When you're able to articulate, I am a sinner in need of salvation. 
This is what words can do. This is what a sentence can do. It brings order. It brings purpose and meaning and clarity to the world. I'll give you another example. It's Valentine's Day weekend, and I'll speak to those of you who are married. I want to believe there are some of you who are married who are here, and you're either in the room or you're listening online this weekend. And I'll just be honest with you. I think there are some of you who are married just struggling. You feel like you've been off recently, you've been fighting recently, you've been miscommunicating recently, things haven't really been lining up very well, and you know it's true, and your spouse knows it's true. Both of you know it, but neither of you have said this sentence out loud, we need help with our marriage. Because when you put that into words, when you say it out loud, when you can put this general feeling of angst into words, then it starts to bring order to your chaotic marriage. It starts to bring clarity to the relationship that had been getting kind of unclear to you. Perhaps for some of you, it's not your marriage. Maybe this last year has thrown you into a funk and you just feel down, you feel in the dumps, you feel blue all the time. And it's not just for a day or a week or a month, but it's months and months on end. And maybe for some of you, you've just kind of been feeling that. And maybe it's time to actually say out loud this sentence, I am depressed and I need help. I need to seek out help for my depression. I need to seek out help for what I'm going through right now. See, words bring order and clarity to the chaos of your emotions. Maybe for some of you, it's not your emotions, it's your finances. And you and your spouse or you and the people you do money with, I've just kind of been uncertain about where things are and where things are going and spending has gotten out of hand and things are not going well for you. You are not stable financially. You know what? At some point you have to be able to say out loud if you ever want to bring order out of the chaos It's that we are broke and need to change. Things are not working and we need to change the way we do money. Perhaps there's someone listening to my voice right now who's been stuck on something. You've been hooked on something. You keep promising that you're never gonna do it again. You keep promising that 2021's the year where you're gonna leave that substance or that behavior behind, but it keeps coming back. You're hooked, you're enslaved to it. And at some point, if you want to bring order out of that chaos, if you want to bring clarity to your life, you have to be able to say, I am addicted and want to be free. See, every example I've given you is putting specific words to a really vague, unclear, chaotic situation. Because when you put words to an unclear, chaotic situation, you begin to be on the path toward healing. See, here's what I'm convinced of, and you can write this down. Once you say it, once you say it, you can start to solve it. Once you say out loud what everyone already knows, then you can start to solve it. You know what I think there are? I think there's some of you who are business owners or leaders in your organization that need to get into the office this week and say out loud what everyone already knows. That's what leadership is. Once you start to say it out loud, then you can start to solve it. I think some of you with your kids, you know there's a problem. Your spouse knows there's a problem. Your kids know there's a problem. Everyone knows there's a problem. And once you say it, then you can begin to solve it. This is the power of words. But the power of words is also true in the inverse. See, it's true for the people who know something, but they're not willing to say it out loud. They know something's a reality, but they're not, they don't have the courage or they don't have the clarity to speak it. And here's what's true for you. If the inverse is true, it's this, that you will, what you will not identify will only intensify. If there's a problem, an addiction, an issue in your marriage, an issue in your business, an issue in your family, an issue going on in your life, but you won't say it out loud. You won't actually put words to it. It will only get worse. It will only intensify. See, this is the first image that James gives us of this powerful animal of a horse who can be controlled by this small little thing that's found right in the midst of its mouth. And that is our words. And it has capacity to bring order and clarity to our life. That next picture or image or metaphor he's going to give us in verse four, it says this, 
Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. So he's going to shift from horses right over to ships without even any explanation. And he gives us this image, and the image I'll show you here is of a boat or of a ship. And when you see this, what you're immediately impressed with is all the stuff you can see. It says it's so large, it's driven by strong winds. What James is trying to say is there's all these noticeable things. But what James is trying to get us to understand is that the most powerful thing in terms of the direction of the ship is this, the rudder. In this picture, it happens to be out of the water a little bit, but usually it's more under the water line. You can't even see it. You don't even notice it. And when you look at a ship, if your buddy said, hey, come out and look at my new boat that I got, almost none of you would be like, let me see the rudder, right? You would not. Why? Because it's just kind of, you don't think of it. It's just kind of under the water. You want to see the rest of it. But James is trying to draw our attention to the thing we don't think is really that powerful, but actually has enormous power and influence on the direction of the boat. And here's what I want us to see this morning in light of what James is trying to teach us. That your words have the power to change the direction of someone's life. And when I say your words have the power, I want to remind you every time I say this, I'm not saying my words or, or some platform person or some media personality or people who speak for a living. I mean every person who's hearing the sound of my voice. Your words have the power to change the direction of someone's life. And even if you don't realize that or get that, it's just like this rudder that no one ever really notices, but it has the power to change the direction of someone's life. And if that's true, if your words and my words have the power to change the direction of someone's life, we need to be thinking often, reflecting often on what kind of words we're using. So let me give you a few questions or some diagnostic stuff for your heart today to ask, okay, what kind of words am I using and how are these words affecting the direction of other people's lives? Let me speak first to those of you who are married. First question, are you speaking gently to your spouse? Is the way you speak to her gently? Wives, is the way you speak to your husband with gentleness? In fact, I'll speak to husbands, especially right now. Um, there are only a few verses in the Bible that are going to tell me that there's something that's going to hinder my prayers. And one of those verses in the Bible that tells me my prayers will be hindered is found in 1 Peter, where it says, Husbands, treat your wives with gentleness and respect that your prayers not, might not be hindered. And here's what I want to say to all the husbands listening to me, and this, this includes myself this morning. When we speak to our wives in inconsiderate, mean, rude, harsh, condescending tones, we are not speaking gently to our wives, and that warning in 1 Peter is applied to us, our prayers might be being hindered. And that's a terrifying reality. But as husbands, we need to live up to that. Are we speaking gently to our spouse, gently to our wife? Wives, same thing for you, that you would speak gently to your husband. Why? Because if words have the power to change the direction of someone's life, then surely your words have the power to change the direction of your marriage, Right? That's true for your marriage. It's true for your kids. Are you speaking patiently to your kids? Are you speaking with the kind of patience that God would speak to you? Uh, again, as a parent, you just kind of start to get frustrated with the same patterns that happen over and over again, and you snap. You lose your patience. And what happens in those moments where we lose our patience with our kids and we do not speak patiently with them is we start to treat them in a harsher way than God treats us. Because yes, your kid lost their shoes again. And yes, your kid's spending too much time on their phone again. And yes, you've had this conversation over and over and over again. But do you know who else stumbles into the same things over and over and over again? You do. And you know what your heavenly father is with you? Patient. Patient with you. And your kids are watching you to get a picture of what our heavenly father is like. Are you speaking patiently to your kids? Next question, let's move it into the area of work. Are you speaking honestly with your colleagues? 
Or have you become the gossip in the office? Have you become the person in your, your, your workspace that people go to for the juiciest bit of gossip or the little insight or, or the meeting after the meeting that happens where you slander the person leading the meeting and you make fun of them and laugh at them? Or have you just become this honest person that they know at work anytime they ask your opinion, you're gonna speak honestly, you're gonna speak truthfully, you're not gonna say what they want to hear, you're going to be a person who is known for honesty at work. Like next question, are you speaking vulnerably in your small group? I love this question because, uh, listen, the question for those of you in a small group is not, are you speaking honestly, okay? My hope is you're not lying constantly to your small group, okay? But, but, but here's what vulnerability is. Vulnerability is sharing in such a way that makes you vulnerable to hurt. It means they could use this against me. They could judge me. They could laugh at me. They could look down on me. But hear me, if you are not speaking vulnerably to your small group, you're not adding anything. If you're the person who comes into small group every week, whether it's in person or Zoom or whatever it is, and people ask, how are you? And you go, we're good. Everything's great. Kids are great. Marriage is great. Life is great. Faith is great. Praise the Lord. He is so good. And you're just all good all the time. And there's no issues. There's two problems with that. Number one is you're lying. Okay. We know it. Like your life isn't perfect 100% of the time, all the time. But the second problem is it's not serving anyone. You saying I'm good and our marriage never has problems and we've never had an issue ever in our lives just makes everyone else feel alone. When the reality is when you're vulnerable and share that, it helps other people grow. It helps other people move forward in your small group. And then finally, are you speaking gracefully online? We've talked about this as a church for a number of years. Calvary may it never be said of us that we're a church that sings about God's grace here and then posts as if that doesn't exist out there. Amen? May that never be said of us. May it never be said that we're a people who talk about God's grace and how he saved us and that we sing about God's amazing grace and then someone pops off on our Facebook and we're just mean and nasty and condescending to them. May it never be said of us. May it never be true. Why? Because our words have the power to change the direction of someone's life. Our words have the capacity to change the direction of someone else's life. And until we recognize that that's true, until we give up the delusion that our words don't really make an impact, we will continue to cause pain in the lives of people we love. It goes on this way in verse five. It gives what to me is my favorite metaphor. It says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, setting the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. It's like, what do you really think, James, right? He's getting amped up here. And here's the image, and we all know this image. We all get this so intuitively. The image is of this small spark that starts a huge forest fire, this tiny little flame that gets out of control. And every one of us gets it. Again, married couples, let me speak to you. Every married couple here knows what it's like to have a conversation. And you said one little thing. It was just that one little thing and you misspoke or said it wrong or said it in a tone that wasn't so good. You said that one little thing and it becomes this huge, massive fight. Some of you had this with a family member. Maybe you said one thing to your mom years ago and she's held on to it and it's become this massive issue in your family. So see, we tend to think that our words only impact people when we have intent and we plan it out and we make this big presentation, but that's not the case. John Piper says it this way. He says that, Books don't change people's lives. Sentences do. And I think that's true. I think it's sentences that some of you heard when you were a kid that have changed your entire life. It was someone who said to you when you were a kid, you'll never amount to anything. You don't have talent. And you've worn that, that insecurity your entire life. It's the person who said, you're not pretty enough. You're not thin enough. You're not good enough. No one will ever love you. And you've walked with that for decades. 
It's the person who said, you're dumb and you're not smart enough and you don't measure up and you're not the good kid and you're not gonna ever be successful and you've worn that your entire life. It's these small little moments that can become a massive raging wildfire in our heart. I remember it was a couple of years ago and I was just out of college and I had the opportunity to get together with some high school friends. And it had been a while since I had seen these high school friends. And so I was excited to see them and excited to get together with them. And, and we got together for a camping trip. And, and so everyone gets together for the camping trip. It's in Northern California. I'm driving from down here in Los Angeles. So I'm the last one there. I drive up in my car and I see my friends and they're sitting around the fire. I'm just excited to see them. I'm pumped to get together with them, hear about their lives, get together and enjoy some time together. So I park my car, I get out of the car, I go to my, my trunk, I grab my bag. I'm walking up to see my friends. And one of my buddies sees me. I'll never forget the first words out of his mouth. He looks at me and he goes, wow, Brian got fat. Oh, do you know what happened the rest of that time? Like that whole get together weekend, that one tiny little phrase became all I thought about. And if I'm honest with you, not just for that little weekend, but for a long time after that, or I'll put it to you this way. It was the first time I ever gave a sermon. First time I ever preached in front of a group of people. And I had done little things here and there, but never like a full sermon that I delivered. And I did it at camp and I gave a gospel invitation. People responded. It just kind of felt in that moment like, wow, this is like this cool thing that God might be stirring in me to like preach. So I preach this message and I preach the gospel and I walk off stage. And I'll never forget this, someone I love and know and respect to this day. Um, he walks up to me and he goes, wow. And I said, oh, I'm expecting something. He goes, you tried, and um, I think you should probably take some public speaking classes. Oh, right? Like, that's just this, like, tiny little sentence, right? But here I am all these years later remembering it, all the insecurity that led to all of them. Maybe I should do something else with my life. Like, this small little sentence. So here's what all of us understand. All of us understand this because this has happened to all of us. The principle all of us understand is that a single sentence can change the quality of someone's life. You know this. If I could line you up outside and we could all talk, which we can't, COVID rules, all that, whatever. Okay, but if we could talk, if I could talk to every one of you, every one of you has stories like this where someone, your mom or a coach or a boss spoke to you and said something and it just wounded you deeply and it's caused this raging fire throughout your life. Every single one of us could articulate a story like that. But you know what else is true? The flip side of this is also true. Do you know that every single one of us could probably tell some kind of story of someone who said the opposite? Of a boss or a friend or a mentor or someone in their life who looked at them and declared, I'm proud of you. I believe in you. You've got gifts. You've got abilities. I, I want to promote you. I want to hire you. I want to marry you. You are lovable. You are beautiful. Like someone said a sentence to you and you've just held on to that for your entire life. So here's what we need to remember. Every person in this room can go home today and change the quality of someone's life through one sentence, one sentence, one text message, one thing you said. It's not a massive thing you have to do. It's these little sentences. And this is what James so deeply understands, that we can change the quality of someone's life through one sentence. It goes on in verse seven. It says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. 
So so he's going to start rattling off metaphors of birds and animals and reptiles and sea creatures and our capacity to tame these animals. The, The message translation paraphrases this scripture very well where it says this. It says, this is scary. You can tame a tiger, but you can't tame a tongue. It's never been done. The tongue runs wild, a wanton killer. I love this. You cannot tame your tongue. It cannot be done. It's never been done. It will never be done. So see, we don't use the word tongue a lot when we talk about our words, except for in one little phrase, we talk about holding your tongue. We say, hold your tongue. And what we're trying to say is have self-control, put the filter on. And a lot of you would say, okay, the idea that it's never been done, you can't tame it. You would go, no, 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 there have been plenty of moments, especially in this last year, where I wanted to say something. I had an opinion. I had a zinger, a good comeback, but I had the filter on. I held my tongue. And here's what I want to submit to you. You are absolutely capable of holding your tongue. Sometimes. Sometimes. And here's the problem. You are 100% capable of holding your tongue unless certain circumstances and certain variables come into your life. Let me put it this way. It's possible to control your tongue unless you happen to be hungry, angry, frustrated, annoyed, provoked, defensive, tired, surprised, sick, disappointed, stressed out, overwhelmed, or fearful. Here's a question for you. In the last year, you ever felt any of these things? (laughs) Let me make it better. In the last week, have you ever felt any of these things? Here's what you know. Every time you say something, you go, I should not have said that. Every time you say something, you go, I wish I could take that back. Every time you say something, you go, I didn't even know I was capable of saying something like that. It's because you are one of these things. See, if your emotional state was perfect at all times and there were never any problems in your life, you were 100% capable of holding your tongue. But the problem for your life (laughs) and the problem for mine is that it is not always this way. And when things get to here, it's not that we say things we don't actually believe. Here's the scary part. When these things happen, We get in a vulnerable place where the filter is down and we say what's actually in our heart. And if you think that's too harsh, let me remind you what Jesus said in Luke chapter six. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You wanna know what comes out of your mouth? What's actually in your heart. You wanna know what comes out of your mouth? What's actually already dwelling in your heart. Your mouth is just the announcer to the world of what's really going on in your heart. And so many of us have deceived ourselves into thinking our heart is this warm, fuzzy, lovely place full of hot chocolate and nice movies. It's not. Our heart is this complicated beast that's filled with love and patience and joy and goodness, but also greed and anger and sin and all sorts of twisted poison. And it's all mingled together in that. And in times we're not careful, that stuff comes out. So you know what the great challenge for us when we think about our words is? It's not how do you hold your tongue better? It's not how do you have better self-control? It's not, how do you make sure you never say the things that are actually on your heart? The answer has to be that we need the Holy Spirit of God to do work on our heart, to make us the type of people who aren't going to say those kinds of things. We need heart surgery. And I wanna give you some questions again to ask yourself this morning to see whether or not you need some heart surgery by the great physician, by the Holy Spirit of God. Because I think for some of us, what we'll realize is the stuff inside of our heart is really revealing and is revealed through the words that we speak. Here's the first question I wanna ask you. Have you gotten comfortable with cursing and foul language? Listen to me. Every time I get up in front of a group of people and declare 
that cursing and foul language and coarse joking has no place among the people of God, that Christians shouldn't cuss. I sound like a preacher who is 150 years old, right? I get that. I get that. I get up here and I say, we shouldn't use bad words. And there are some of you listening online or in the room right now who have justified why it's okay for you because God knows your heart. And I'm here to declare this morning that God knows your heart and still commands you not to use foul language. It has no place among the people of God. It has no place coming out of your mouth. Foul language and coarse joking. It's not just, ah, it's no big deal. Like God directly commands us that it has no place in our life. And listen to me, I'm not standing up here like trying to like beat up on you as someone who's never said a bad word or never said a coarse joke. I have. But the issue isn't do you never do it. It's when you do it, do you acknowledge it, confess it to God, and repent of it? Because that's what you're called to do. And my fear is that for some people, Christians living in the 21st century, we're just trying to be in step with the culture that is so foul and vulgar that we've gotten comfortable with the very thing God's told us not to do. It reveals something about our heart. Let me ask you another one. Have you justified why it's okay for you to make racist, sexist, and bigoted jokes? Like if you just decided it's okay for you and with your friends and everyone knows your heart and they know what you mean and they know it's not really you and they know it's just a joke, like have you gotten comfortable with that? Have you justified that? Because again, it's revealing something inside of your heart. And again, when you acknowledge it, it's not just feel guilty or bad or like I'm not a good enough Christian. It's just you confess it. You identify it and you repent and turn from it because it has no place for the people of God. Let me shift gears a little. Let me ask you another question. Do you speak to your family, your mom, your dad, your sister, with the same kind of patience that you do with your friends? Do, do any of you recognize how easy it is for your friend to be late all the time or for your friend to say something offhanded that, that kind of hurts you or for your friend to fail you in some way and you're like, oh, that's just Sally, she always does that. And it's like okay with you and it's like your friends and it's a big joke, but then your sister, your brother does one thing wrong and you're just like outraged. Do you speak with them with the same kind of patience? Because if not, that's revealing something about your heart, revealing about something in your heart that you need to deal with when it comes to your family. Next question. Has sarcasm become out of control in your friendships? Uh, I know this is true for men and women, but maybe I can just specifically speak to men. Um, there, there are so many friendships I have had or had where, where like the primary thing was just like roasting one another. Okay, right? which is fun and like we joke with one another and it's sarcastic and we joke and we joke and it's funny and it's funny until it's not, right? And then it crosses some line and no one ever knows where the line is, but suddenly people are wounded and hurt by your sarcasm. Can I remind you the beauty of the word sarcasm? It actually just comes from two Greek words. The word sarks, which is the word flesh, and the word chasm, which means a divide. So sarcasm literally means to slice open the flesh. Like that's what sarcasm is. And it can get so out of hand in your friendships where, where it's actually just revealing that it's not just joking. There's actually some stuff in your heart you need to deal with. The next question for you, um, and this is the big question. If a recording of you and your friends late at night was released publicly, would you be unfazed or shamed? See, this is the integrity question when it comes to the words that come out of your mouth. Uh, a lot of people think integrity is honesty. Integrity includes honesty, but it's not exclusively honesty. Integrity, the word integrity comes from the word integer, which is a whole number. To have integrity is to be a whole person, a complete person, which means I speak the same way when I'm with my family that I do in my small group, than I am when I'm at church, when I'm on the ball field, when I'm in my office, I speak the same way everywhere. And for some of you, you've divided up your life where at church you use like really good words, but then in other places you use really bad words, but sometimes you get your wires crossed and you're at church and you say a word you shouldn't have said and you go, oh, I'm so sorry. 
That's like a heart issue. Like the issue isn't if you say a bad word in here, the roof will cave in. Like that's not the issue. The issue is your heart and you having the integrity to say, I am the same person every place I go. Because here's what Jesus says. Out of the abundance of your heart, that's the words that come out. So you can try to control it. You can try to kind of filter it. You can try to hold your tongue. But if anything ever goes wrong, what's really in your heart is going to burst out. And sometimes that's not a pretty thing. And I want to invite some of you to heart surgery this morning from the great physician to allow the Holy Spirit, to beg the Holy Spirit this week to do work on your heart because you know what comes out of your mouth. Final verse we're going to look at is verse 11. He asks a question, James does. He says, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Here's how many images he's like, let's talk about salt water. Let's also talk about trees, but back to salt water, right? He's just all over the place. And he's trying to give us this image. And this last image I want to linger on for a moment because I think it's important for us to think about the power of the idea of a salt water or a fresh spring. So let's think of it this way. Um, I've been speaking up here for about 45 minutes. And when I speak, um, I I don't tend to drink a lot of water. And so right after a sermon, uh, I'll go backstage and I'll try to drink some fresh water. And I'll try to drink to kind of recover if I have another service to preach or I'm just kind of off for the rest of the day. I'll drink fresh water. The same is true for any of you. If you do anything of any physical exertion, you want some fresh water. And here's the image. There's like this deep well of your life that is filled with fresh water. This deep well of what you offer yourself and others and the world. And it is filled with fresh water. And here's the image that James is trying to give us. That if we're not careful with our words and we just have certain little things, It's not a big deal. It's not a huge deal. It's not public. It's just in private. It's just these little, little things. What can really quickly start to happen is we can start to poison the well of our life. See, if I do this with this water and then someone offered this to me, they're like, hey, here's some water for you after you preach. I would be like, no, I'm not going to drink that. But what if they said, it's not a big deal. It's just a little bit of salt. Like it wasn't a lot of salt. I would say no to that. And why would I say no to that? Because me and you and all of us have watched enough survival shows to know the number one rule is don't drink the salt water, right? right? You drink the salt water, you'll get more thirsty. You drink the salt water, it'll be counterproductive. It looks tempting, but don't do it. And this is what happens. This little bit of salt gets into the well of our life. This little bit of poison gets into this deep well of our life. And when that happens, it shapes our entire existence. Again, When it comes to words, so many of us are tempted to think that it's okay if I have these little moments or these little things or these little words. It's not that big of a deal. It's just words. Why are you going on and on about this, James? Why are you going on and on and on about this, Brian? But it's these little things that that poison, that salt up this deep well of our lives. And it's this deep well of our lives that I want us to think about as we consider the final way we talk, the final kind of words we say. You see, I talked about words bringing order and clarity to your life. I've talked about words shaping the direction of other people's lives, the quality of other people's lives. But I want to make a suggestion this morning that I think you'll all see as true immediately, even if you've never said it this way. Can I suggest to you this, that nobody talks to you more than you talk to you? Nobody does that. Nobody talks to you. And listen, there's different levels of this, right? There's like you're driving along and you forget to take the turn. You're like, oh, no, come on. Why'd you do that, right? There's that kind of talking. And then there's the kind of talking where you like talk to yourself in extended ways and you might look a little wild if you're a little crazy uh, if you do that. But I'm not talking about even talking out loud. I'm just talking about this constant internal monologue some of you have about your lives. 
about how you're doing, about the past, about the future, about your strengths, about your weaknesses, about your shame, about your sin. There's this constant internal monologue that's going on. And if it is in fact true that our words have power, and if it is in fact true that no one speaks to us as much as we speak to us, I think what's important for all of us to do in closing this morning is this. It's to consider the conversations you are having with yourself. To consider the ways you're speaking to yourself. See, words have power not just for the people around us, but our words have power for ourselves. I want to talk to you about three types of conversations I believe you might be having with yourself. And I want you to just examine and recognize when these conversations happen. Here's the first conversation. It's conversations that turn a comma into a period. A comma into a period. I think you'll understand it this way. I work with a lot of college students, young adults, high school kids. I want you to imagine there's a young adult man uh, who's been dating this girl for three years and she breaks up with him. And he comes to my office and he's crying and he's sad and he's upset and he doesn't know what to do. And he says something like this, Brian, I was sure I was going to marry her and now I'm not certain I'll ever marry anyone. What's he done? He's turned a comma into a period. But don't you dare believe that's just something young people do. There are people who have been married 20 years who go, well, my marriage has been bad and things haven't been good and we've been fighting a lot. I guess it'll always be this way. There's someone who lost their job in the midst of the last year due to everything that's happened in our economy. And you've gone, I lost my job, therefore my career will never be back on track. I'm struggling with this sin and I just can't seem to get over it. So I guess it's always gonna be that way. You turn a comma into a period. Next conversation is the one where you turn an is into an ought. The is is the current reality of your life, the current experience you're having. And the ought is what you should be doing with that current experience. The is is the current experience. The ought is what you do with that. It's I've always struggled with this sin. I've always been angry and my dad was angry and his dad was angry. So I guess I should just be an angry person. I've always struggled with this sexual sin and it's always in there and it's always just been wired in me and I've always given into it. So I guess I ought to just give into it. I've always been a bad prayer. I've always been bad at reading the Bible. Therefore, I guess I ought to just give up. When you turn an is into an ought, I want you to be aware of those conversations. And final conversation I want you to consider and be aware of is where you turn a fear into a fact, where you have a fear of something and it just becomes a fact in your mind. It's when the election doesn't go the way you think the election should have gone. And you're afraid because there's people in power that want to lead this nation or our state or our community in a direction you don't like. You're afraid of that. And for some of you, you've turned that into the reality that it's already happened. When it's still just a fear, you turn a fear into a fact. Listen, anyone who's a parent does this with their kids, right? You have some fear that something's going to go wrong. You have some fear that there's going to be some issue. You have a fear that there's a problem with your kid, and it turns into a fact. When in fact, it's just a fear. See, there are conversations we are having with ourselves constantly. Conversations that aren't fair, that aren't kind, that aren't charitable. Conversations we have with ourselves that we would never say to anyone else. In fact, I was speaking with someone this week who was talking about how a friend challenged her in this. Uh, The friend said this, and I thought this was such a powerful challenge. Here's the question she was asked. Would you ever speak to your children with the words you're speaking to yourself? Would you? Would you ever speak with the kind of harsh, angry, twisted, mean, manipulative way you speak to yourself? Would you ever speak to your kids that way? And the answer is, of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. But here's actually the more important conversation. Would God speak to you with the words that you speak to you? And that's the real question. The real question is, are the words you're speaking to yourself the words that God would speak to you? Because if the words you're speaking to yourself and the words that God has for you don't align, the problem is with the words you're saying. 
The problem is with the beliefs you're walking in. You are buying into the lies of the enemy rather than the truth of the word of God. And so if you are, are, are kind of wrestling with this question, here, here's what I want to do. I want to tell you what God sounds like. I'm going to read just a few verses. I'm not going to comment on them at all. And I just want you to know that if the words you are speaking to yourself don't sound like this, there's some adjusting to do in the way you speak with yourself. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Psalm 94.14 says, for the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Joshua 1.9 says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. And Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You want to know what the God of the universe sounds like? He sounds like that. That's what God says over you. That's what God speaks over you. And if this internal conversation you have about your past and your sin and your shame and your future and your insecurities doesn't sound like this, you need to shift what your words are to what God's words are to you. And here's why. Because this whole conversation about words really comes to us through a truth. And it is a theological truth found in the first chapter of the Bible. And that first chapter of the Bible says we are created in God's image. So the truth we need to recognize is this that our words matter because we are created in the image of the God who speaks, who has something to say, who spoke the universe into motion, who spoke the universe into existence, who it says in Hebrews chapter one, sustains all things by his powerful word, who speaks truth, who speaks light, who speaks salvation. This is the God who speaks. And we, as his people, we as human beings are created in his image. And so our words have power. Our words have meaning. Listen, they say sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And I hope we've realized this morning that that is wildly, completely untrue. Your words have the power to damage. Your words have the power to hurt. Not only other people in your word, but your, in your world, but your own self and your own soul and your own future. But your words also have the other power to build up, to speak life, to speak truth, and ultimately to speak about Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we get an opportunity to gaze deeply into it. Father, I pray for anyone who's just wearing guilt or shame or some kind of embarrassment about anything you've been convicting of this morning. I pray that they would drag that to the foot of the cross, that people will walk out of here with a holy conviction, a holy sense of the power their words have that you have gifted us with. Father, I pray that we as Calvary, we as a church would be people who use our words to build up, to encourage, to bless. And when we fail and fall short, may we be a people of repentance, a people after your glory. So God, thank you for the words that we can speak. Thank you for the capacity we have to step into your image through the words we speak. God, may we hold that power with reverence and awe of who you are. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.